The film 99 Homes follows the family of a Florida man, played by Andrew Garfield, as they're evicted from their home. Michael Shannon plays the real estate broker who preys on people who miss their rent or mortgage payments. Good afternoon. Afternoon. I'm uh, Deputy Anderson with the Sheriff's Department, and uh, we're here to serve you with a court-ordered eviction. Okay, well... So, sir, ma'am, uh, do you have any weapons on your body or anywhere in the house that we need to know about? Not Mr. Us. Carver? Good morning, sir. Ma'am, my name is Rick Carver. I'm a licensed real estate broker. Mr. Carver. Rick? I'm very sorry to tell you that this home has been foreclosed on and officially transferred to the bank. And I'm going to need you to please vacate the premises. No, I, I understand what you're saying, Mr. Carver. And I've, 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 we've been getting our eviction notices. I was in court yesterday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, the judge informed me that I got 30 days filed for an appeal. And that's what I intend to well, do. Well, if you posted bond and you have an emergency stay signed by the judge, you're welcome to well, I got a question. You guys didn't get any rescheduling of the, what the eviction What I received date. is a court order signed by a judge. It says you are to vacate these premises today. There's an eviction crisis in this country. Soaring rents and low wages have hit the poorest families hard, leaving many people just a car repair or hospital visit away from missing a payment and possibly out on the street. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the eviction crisis. Later in the show, people who live on or near Indian reservations are being denied access to credit. But first, a study led by Pulitzer Prize-winning sociologist Matthew Desmond at Princeton's Eviction Lab looked at evictions on a national scale. Surprisingly, it showed half of the 10 cities with the nation's highest rates of eviction were in Virginia. Catherine Howell and Ben Teresa are part of the RVA Eviction Lab at the Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs at Virginia Commonwealth University. Kate and Ben, how large is the eviction problem for renters in the U.S.? We know many people own their own homes, many others rent, but eviction? It's a huge issue for families, particularly you know, yeah, we have a homeownership rate in the country that is 65% now, but that means you've got a lot of people that are still renting, and eviction is an incredibly disruptive process that has larger implications for schools and for individual kids and families, for jobs and for transportation, not just for housing. It's been called a nationwide eviction crisis. Why crisis? Are there more evictions now than before? So by crisis, I think we mean that the effects are intensely felt by people and it's been sustained for at least 10 or 15 years now. How have we learned just how big the eviction rates are? Sure. Uh, Matthew Desmond, who is a researcher at Princeton University, released the most comprehensive nationwide data set of evictions that we've seen so far. Other places have done this on a smaller scale, particularly in the Bay Area of California, but this was really the first time we understood the scale of what was going on and that it wasn't just a small thing that happens in some places, but it's nationwide, as Ben said. And we also found internationally um, the rate of eviction is around 3%. But in some places you see much higher rates. And so, for example, the city of Richmond's sustained rate over the past 16 years has been about 11%. And you see that pop up in places like Atlanta and um, North Charleston, South Carolina, 
But really across the country, you see these pockets of high eviction rates relative to the rest of the country. So where there are most evictions, you imagine you have the hugest population of poor people renting homes. Right. That holds up to a certain extent. But what we actually find is that the racial composition of the neighborhood is the most influential factor on those eviction rates. You know, we're not necessarily saying that a landlord is looking at two tenants, one that's white and one that's black, and they're saying, uh, you're out, you're in. It's not as simple as that. Uh, Some neighborhoods have different types of housing options and different access to jobs, different access to education. Uh, And so all of that ultimately plays into this larger conversation about eviction. What we're talking about is access to mortgage credit, the ability to own a home. And so that has been historically uh, limited for African-American people and families, which meant that they were always more likely to be renters than white people. It's also things like background checks. African-Americans are disproportionately criminalized, and so that adds something to your background check, credit check likewise. All of these things ultimately um, shift the kind of housing options that are available. People are getting shunted into less desirable housing options in less desirable neighborhoods, and that disproportionately falls on African-Americans. The two of you have created something called the RVA Eviction Lab, the Eviction Lab Analysis of These Rates for the Richmond Area in Virginia. Did you do this after you were startled by the eviction rates that were exposed by the Princeton Eviction Lab? Right. So in order to inform any kind of changes in laws or policies that would uh, reduce evictions, we needed to know more about why evictions were happening and how they were happening. Because that's the only way you can really start to look at the policy levers and change really what's going on. And it's not as simple as people just can't pay their rent, right? If it was that easy, I'm sure we would have solved it years ago, right? But there's more to it than that. It can be anything from medical bill that sets their entire budget off. So it means that you miss a rent payment, and that starts a really chain reaction of things. Uh, It can be a car breakdown, as I said, things that kind of the one bad day idea that really ultimately blows your budget. We actually have students that work with us uh, in in the eviction lab. Um, And then at one point they told their story in which they said, when I was in fourth grade, uh, my family did not uh, have a home. I missed most of my fourth grade year because of that situation. Yeah. That's one that sticks with me. And I think the other one for me is the, the difficulty of then finding housing the next time. The, a woman that I interviewed um, talked about that. She said it's, it's as bad as, as having a, a criminal record. You know, that sticks with you. The, you can't get housing in the next space. And so that the, the cascade of housing instability is, I think, what to me has been really um, alarming. Who's doing most of the evicting? Is it a sort of mom and pop who have a couple of places and they are letting people go or booting them? Or is it larger corporations that run giant apartment complexes? So a large share of all the evictions come from a small set of landlords. There's no question about that. We know that corporate landlords, so larger scale landlords that own tens or even hundreds of properties, evict at higher rates than smaller landlords. And we also know that uh, landlords that are corporate that are tied to larger investment firms, financial Wall Street type firms that back these 
landlords that they evict at even higher rates. And, and so it is a matter of who is the landlord, who is the owner, and who is financing, because that really alters the role that eviction plays in landlording as a business. Are we also finding the states that have the cities with the highest eviction rates or states that have laws that favor landlords over tenants? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a trend that we're seeing. And you see cities that have um, improved tenant protections or better tenant protections, whether it's a right to counsel or general sort of information, different timelines. We find that they, the eviction rates are lower. And um, a report came out, I believe, this week. Uh, about New York when that introduced a right to counsel, which has dropped their eviction rate significantly in New York City. And so the more information tenants have, the more equal playing field they have, that tends to reduce the eviction rate. It's a complex situation in New York City because landlords and real estate is extremely powerful. And so I don't want to suggest that renters are in a uh, strong position vis-a-vis landlords in a a place in New York City for a variety of reasons. But it is the case that there are more protections for renters in New York City. And so one of the hallmarks of these protections is that we see that renters are able to stay in their housing for longer periods of time. And that would be the case not just in a place like New York City, but I suspect D.C. But we often sometimes criticize renters as being transient. And one of the best things we can do for that is to put into place renter protections that would actually allow them some stability of tenure. Why would you invest in your neighborhood if you know you aren't going to be able to stay? If there's no way that you will be able to stay beyond, you know, a year? A lot of my research has been in D.C. and and you get people who have been displaced so many times that they just expect to have to move in spite of the tenant protections that happen in D.C., which are actually fairly robust. And at the same time, you know, I interview tenants who have lived in the same unit for 42 years, not just the same neighborhood, not just the same building, but the same unit. These people are very invested in their neighborhoods. I talked to a woman this past week who had been in her building since the building was built in 1972. There are really stable renters, but you have to facilitate that somehow because homeownership can't be the answer for everybody. We have pretty much in this country completely forfeited the idea of public housing as playing a role and playing um, a part in the solution here. And so while we should acknowledge the real problems historically that public housing has in our cities, there has to be a role, there is a role for public investment in housing, that it's not just sort of a housing of last resort. What we have seen since the 2008 financial crisis is a growing share of renters in the United States who are increasingly squeezed by unaffordable rents. And so that public housing, a public option for housing, a public investment in housing can benefit more than just the very poor, that it can actually provide something that market housing with or without rental protections cannot. That's so true. There was a sea change after the market crashed. And so many people, young or poor or otherwise, said, we have to or want to turn to renting instead of buying. And of course, there was also this sort of period after urban renewal when everybody thought public housing is the way to go, and that's been really discredited. So how to think of public housing in a more uplifting way 
where we're not crushing the souls of people, but giving a leg up during either transition or need. Many of the failures that we know from public housing in terms of their destructiveness of existing neighborhoods, in terms of racial segregation and neglect, a lot of those stem from problem is that public housing was always structured by the private rental market um, and by private real estate interests. And so even though it was public housing, it was uh, relegated to certain parts of the city. It wasn't provided the, the resources in terms of the costs, meeting the cost of operating those buildings. And so I think we need to be clear about why there were the failures of public housing that there, that there have been. Have you seen one city or one area where they've managed to scale up affordable housing and make it appealing and workable to the people who live there? Yeah, you see it in places that are investing significant funding in affordable housing, and they're investing it in even ways across their city. They're not putting all their affordable housing into the poorest communities, but they're starting to really say, okay, wealthy communities, you need to have your fair share. And I think that's actually been very effective. But again, it takes investment. Um, you know, we have in the city of Richmond a million dollars in our trust fund uh, just up the road in D.C., which is only three times the size. They have $100 million every single year. A um, million dollars is about, I don't know, less than 10 units. It's, it's couch cushion change, right? Um, so, uh, so really, if we want to solve this problem, we can't put a small-scale solution to what is actually a large crisis and has been a large crisis building over time. And, you know, it's, it's not changing. What are other steps that people are contemplating that would help lower eviction rates? Well, I think one of the exciting ones to, to think about is the recent Medicaid expansion. So we've had some research come out nationally about the impact of Medicaid expansion on eviction rates, and it actually decreases the eviction rates. What the Medicaid expansion does is actually makes your medical expenses more predictable. You aren't going to get a $20,000 bill that you have to sort of try to pay off over time. You've got insurance that you can go to the doctor, you can get your medicine filled. You don't have to pay out of pocket when you have to take your kid to the pediatrician because they have uh, the flu. So I think, I think what we're talking about is that there's things that can be done to reduce evictions, and then there's things that can be done to reduce the causes or address the causes of evictions. I see what you mean, because reducing the evictions is a little bit of a Band-Aid step. What you want is for people to feel enough secure that they have housing, they have shelter they can count on, a job that they can depend on, and a livable life. That's right. This crisis has long-term cyclical effects that increase economic and political inequality. And so what I mean is you're not able to organize politically if your community is destabilized by high eviction rates, if you yourself are being displaced and are, and are don't have, as you said, a shelter, a decent home, to know that they're safe and secure. That is going to demobilize people politically. And if you're demobilized politically, then you're not going to be able to address these underlying causes. You can't elect people to the positions of power where they can designate money for more secure housing. 
And you can't even get it together to get everyone to show up at a council hearing to say, hey, this is wrong or this is right and we support this. Um, so even the small scale things, we're showing up to community meetings. It's awfully hard to sort of get that together when you're still sort of trying to keep your house stable. I think if we, if we take evictions down to what really is the problem, and I always tell my students this, I'm like, okay, what's, what are we actually upset about? And what we're actually upset about is housing instability. What does it mean for a family? What does it mean for a community? And quite frankly, what does it mean for the city and the region? At the end of the day, we really have to take a step back and realize what is actually bad about evictions, and that is that it causes immense instability. Why should people who have stable housing care about whether a minority of their fellow citizens in a given city or community don't. Great, yeah, great thing to think about. And I think that what the last 10 years since the 2008 financial crisis have shown us is that you may think you have stable housing, but for a lot of people, the financial crisis demonstrated that they really don't. And so just because you think that you are protected, you may have more in common with um, people who are being evicted or in common with the people, but in common with the problems that are producing that unstable housing. Ben Teresa and Catherine Howell are professors at the Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs at Virginia Commonwealth University. Coming up next, access to credit for some, but not all. Redlining is the practice of systematically denying services like banking and loans, and even grocery stores, to certain neighborhoods or communities based on race. A recent study found redlining is happening on or near American Indian reservations. Valentina dimitrova Grajel is a professor of economics at Virginia Military Institute. She joins me to talk about her findings. Valentina, you and your colleagues looked into something that is aggravating already terrible economic conditions on Indian reservations across America. What was that? Access to credit. Credit facilitates transactions, and it makes sure that you have some protection against risk. For example, if you have a medical emergency or if your car breaks down or if the government shuts down and you don't get a paycheck, right? You do not have anything to rely on to get access to funds. So how did you determine this? How did you find out that people who were living on or near reservations across America were really distinctly lacking access to credit? We started out by looking at a study done in 2001 that there's a dearth or there's a scarcity of of, uh, banks, financial institutions on or near reservations. American Indians, on average, have lower credit scores and they have lower access to traditional banking. And so we started researching individuals' access to credit through a database that Equifax, one of the main credit bureaus, has put together. And what we found is that the racial composition of the geography actually had a significant effect on credit limits. We looked at individuals who lived on reservations or near reservations. So, How many states were represented? 
Washington State, California, New Mexico, Arizona, Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota are some of the states that were represented. And what did you conclude? Our findings seem to suggest that there is um, what's called redlining. So what exactly is redlining? How do you see that? Yeah. So redlining is the practice of giving either less credit to people in a particular geographic uh, region or giving them more credit but with worse terms. Let's say you um, charge them higher interest, you uh, have more fees. And even though somebody might be credit worthy, simply because they live in an area that is predominantly a particular race, they might be denied credit. I think of it as a geographic discrimination. It's not a discrimination based on your individual race, but it's based on the characteristics of the majority of people who live in your zip code, for example. And who would do the redlining? These would be employees of banks that are nearby? Correct. So whether it's employees of banks or the banks purposefully decide that they would not give as much credit to people in particular zip codes, for example. And couldn't they be doing that because they said, hey, our experience is these people are constantly defaulting. Let's don't even do it. So what our research does is it actually controls for that. It controls for the fact that some people might be less credit worthy or they might have some history of filing for bankruptcy uh, or defaulting on their loans. We found that even if people had good credit history, they would still be on average getting lower credit limits if they lived in areas that had a higher percent of American Indian uh, residents. Why do you think that was happening? Do you think that was just a long-standing practice from more overtly discriminatory days that had carried over till now? I think so. So redlining really goes back to the 1930s, and it started out with mortgage markets and with insurance markets. With African-American communities. Yes, African-American communities. And actually, uh, the practice refers back to this idea of taking a map and drawing a red line around a particular region and essentially saying we're now going to give loans to people in this particular area because we believe they're going to default, even if this is just purely based on prejudice and bias. And there have been a lot of um, measures sort of taken over time to um, ensure that everybody has equal access to credit, irrespective of their race or national origin. But it's very difficult to ensure that this type of uh, discrimination doesn't happen. And if redlining is against the law, but it's happening on these reservations and near them, what's the remedy? One of the things that has taken off in the past 15 years is something called community development financial institutions. And they usually open in areas that are underserved by traditional banks. They usually understand the culture of reservations, and they're really specifically focused on building financial literacy and building credit histories so that then they can allow residents of reservations or near reservations to build credit and be able to go and use credit from traditional banks. It interests me that you grew up in Bulgaria and did so much of your early research on 
The forms of government following the collapse of the Soviet Union in the Eastern Bloc countries, how has that, do you think, influenced your ability to see what's happening on Indian reservations in America? Yeah, I think that um, my experience in Bulgaria has showed me how important culture is in economic development and how important it is for us to consider the cultural context of a country or reservation or state for the policies that we enact. So, for example, in the context of American Indian reservations, a lot of the policies that have been put in place took away some of the legitimacy of governance on reservations. And so they led to worse governance, they led to lack of trust, they led to uh, increasing crime on reservations because people did not trust the law enforcement, they did not trust the state courts. The state courts imposed the American paradigm, which is very adversarial. It's the idea that you go to court and there is punishment, that the only focus is really on punishing the person who has committed a crime, while in the indigenous paradigm, there's so much more focus on community and restorative justice, which is really more focused on on harmony. And so what my Bulgarian experience sort of guided me toward is this idea of being very aware of the importance of context and culture and norms, social norms, and that when we think about economic development, we cannot be thinking about it without thinking about people's mindsets. How did you see that in Bulgaria? So um, Bulgaria was a socialist country until 1989. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell, and then Bulgaria started to transition from socialism to capitalism, or this idea of a market economy. Bulgaria had no memory of a market economy, right? There was no private ownership before socialism, before World War um, II. And so people had a really hard time understanding um, what the right approach was to transition and how to build institutions that would support a market economy. How do you make sure that the courts function in a way that makes it easy to to resolve disputes? How do you make sure that people understand democracy and how democracy works, right? These are all things that take a long time to develop. And in the case of Bulgaria, We went from socialist system to capitalist system overnight. Sometimes you might want to have a gradual transition or you might want to really carefully evaluate people's mindsets and people's memory and people's historical experiences before imposing a path of development that might have worked somewhere else. It's so interesting that that helps you see what's happening within America on these reservations. Yeah, Well, Valentina, thank you so much for sharing your insights today on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. Valentina Dimitrova-Grajal is a professor of economics at Virginia Military Institute. She was named a 2018 Outstanding Faculty Member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. 
This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. January's shutdown of the government was the latest in a series of blows endured by America's civil servants. Few of us comprehend the scope of federal government services, from protection of the nuclear arsenal and the electric grid from terrorism, to food safety, storm warnings, school lunches, and the rural anti-poverty programs. With good reason, spoke with Michael Lewis about his newest book, The Fifth Risk. It's a fascinating account of how federal government agencies have fared under the Trump administration. Michael Lewis is the author of many best-selling books, including Moneyball, The Blind Side, Liar's Poker, and The Big Short. Michael, what shocks me about your book is the feeling that we're hollowed out. The federal government is sort of coasting on fumes if you think about how many people have left and who is or is not even running at the very top levels. It is incredible, and it's incredible how uh, sort of indifferent the public seems to be to this, that, that you've got half of the top 700 jobs that Trump is supposed to have filled not not filled, that you've got 20 percent of the senior civil service having quit in the first year. Um, that you've got the people who are there not having actually ever been briefed by the former administration or by the civil service. It's as if a group of people came in and assumed it sort of ran itself when their job is to run the thing. But doesn't it actually run itself? Don't we have thousands of civil servants who know how to do the job, whether the political appointees come in and know their stuff or not? Our federal government does not run itself. It's not like the British civil service. The president, the new administration, is supposed to make 4,000 appointees, essentially the top level of management in the government. And while, yes, there are civil servants who can kind of get by for a while without direction from the management, there are a couple of things they can't do. They One, they can't implement anything new. Uh, two, if some crisis happens, they really aren't well-suited to be managing the crisis because they have their, their authority is limited. They're supposed to be directed by the president and the president's political appointees. And three, there's this, this general feeling that if the managers are indifferent to the enterprise, what is that going to say to the people who are working in the enterprise? I mean, th- and this isn't just purely a problem of Trump. There's been in the society, I think, a neglect or a misunderstanding of the federal government for a long time because it's been used as a kind of a political whipping boy. So the system that we have that we're all aware of is that every four years, a new president comes in, or every eight years, and there's a transition of power. But actually, there's an elaborate protocol for what happens at all these vast federal agencies. It's not even a protocol. It's it's legally required. The nominees of the two major parties, from the minute they have the nomination, are required to build transition teams. The idea is you assemble hundreds of people who are qualified to go into, you know, the Department of Transportation or the Treasury Department or the State Department, and the day after the election start to take on board whatever it is they're working on. So on the other side, the Obama administration or whoever it is, is required to prepare to brief these people. And because Bush had handed the government over so cleanly to Obama, 
Obama was really grateful for it. He basically said, we're going to try to do this and do it even better. They had a thousand people work for six months, essentially creating the best course that's ever been created on how the government works. And these aren't ideological things. It's sort of like if you're in the energy department, how, do you, how are you managing this huge nuclear waste cleanup? Or if you're in the Center for Disease Control, how did you handle the Zika virus outbreak? It's, it's, it's sort of like practical management things. And you may disagree with how we did it, but you kind of need to know how we did it. Well, what happened in this case was unprecedented. The Obama administration is sitting there waiting for the Trump administration the day after the election, literally waiting, parking spots set aside, you know, conference rooms set aside, briefing books open, and nobody shows up. And nobody shows up that day, that week, that month. And in many cases, still nobody's ever shown up to the point where I went and got briefings that still had not been given that I was the first person to hear the briefings. When you say people were waiting, waiting where? Throughout the government. So in the Department of Energy, there are teams of people. In the Department of Agriculture, there are teams of people. In the Department of Defense, there are teams of people. The Department of Treasury, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Interior, the Department of Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development. So you've got these people just sitting there, twiddling their thumbs, wondering where the incoming administration is. And the reason they hadn't gotten there is that the day after the election, Trump fired his entire transition team. It started with Chris Christie throwing his support to Trump and then saying, hey, let me run your transition team. It was more haphazard than that. Christie read in the New York Times that there had to be this transition team. And he read the name of the person who the Trump campaign had sent to the meeting. And it was someone who knew nothing about government. So Christie thought, ah, maybe I'll manage the transition. So he went to Trump and said, let me run this for you. And Trump says, I don't want to pay for that. I don't, I don't want there to be one. And Chris said, you know, you don't, you don't understand. You have to. It's, it's the law. He said, screw the law, basically. And what he was worried about was it was going to cost money. So Christie said, don't worry about it. I'll raise the money. I'll set up a transition team for you. And he was great at it. He was very good at it, I think. Not only raising the money, but finding the right people who were qualified to receive the briefings of what was going on now. There's another thing. See, the other function they perform, and this was crippling to the Trump administration when Trump fired them all, they had essentially vetted people for the top couple of hundred jobs in government. And they had vetted out people like Michael Flynn because they knew he had problems with Russia. They discovered all the problems and said, no, you actually can't appoint him or you can't appoint her. So the idea was that it would expedite Trump filling the jobs with people who were qualified and who didn't have conflicts of interest or didn't have some other problem that would impede their Senate confirmation. So tell me the fateful night that... <laughs> well, so what happens is... There are these hundreds and hundreds of people sitting in offices in Washington waiting to get the briefings for the Obama administration. And Steve Bannon calls Christie into his office in Trump Tower up in New York and says, you're fired. And Christie says, um, who's firing me? And he says, I don't want to talk about it. And Christie says, if you don't talk about it, I'm going to tell everybody you fired me. And he said, the kids fired you. J Jared Kushner once you fired. That was no surprise to Christie because Christie, when he was back when he was a U.S. attorney uh, in New Jersey, he had put Jared Kushner's father in jail for tax fraud. And Kushner went to Trump and said, you got to fire him. You don't want him in the transition. Now, the bigger story of all this is that, like, why let Chris Christie run this thing in the first place if all you're going to do is fire him if you win? And it seems pretty clear that the reason is that Trump never planned to win. He didn't want the transition at all because it was pointless because he was never going to be president. But if someone's got to do it, let Christie do it because it doesn't matter. 
So when they fired Christie, did they say, thank you very much, your services aren't needed? Now we'll take the 4,000 names that you vetted and look through those. Great question, because they didn't. They fired everybody. And then they took the briefing books that had the names of people who they had vetted, uh, and they threw them in the garbage can. Who did they get instead, and who was doing the picking? Well, then it's chaos, because uh, they, don't, they don't know anybody. They've offended everybody. Trump has basically said, anybody who wasn't pro-Trump right from the beginning, anybody who expressed any misgivings about me, I don't want around. And that, of course, eliminated not only all the Democrats, but also all the Bush people and anybody who knew anything who didn't want this guy in. So um, Trump himself sort of cast his cabinet in very um, whimsically. So Rex Tillerson, who he'd never met, he he says he kind of looks like a secretary of state. He can be secretary of state. He did it that way. He didn't pick people based on their qualifications. But he didn't staff the government. He staffed the cabinet with people who, many of whom were unsuitable for the jobs and many of whom are now gone. But he didn't go beyond the cabinet. I assume that every president makes some bad choices. Was it any worse with this president? Much, much worse. I mean, it's, this is, it's, it's true that there are jobs in the government, especially these ambassadorships, that are regarded as just political plums, treats for the people who supported you. But that's not true of many, many jobs in the government. I mean, all you got to do is go across the government and say, look who was there before and look who replaced them. A Department of Energy. The Department of Energy is a terrifying place in that it manages all the nuclear weapons and nuclear waste sites. It's a place where lots of bad things could happen. You really need to know something about science. The outgoing Secretary of Energy was Ernie Moniz, who is a nuclear physicist, who was head of, I think, the Department of Physics at MIT, and actually a gifted manager. He was replaced by Trump with Rick Perry, uh, governor of Texas, who called for the elimination of the Department of Energy in a presidential debate without being able to remember its name, without knowing anything it did. He confessed all this when Trump made him the Secretary of Energy. When he said, he apologized and said, I didn't have any idea what it did. The people inside the Department of Energy I spoke to said that he didn't bother to get briefed on a single program and that his, his approach to the job was kind of to be a little, sort of cheerleader. I mean, the Department of Energy runs this network of labs like uh, Los Alamos and Scandia and the Lawrence Livermore Lab. He's made, you know, he goes and visits places and tweets about them, but there's no sense that he's engaged in any meaningful way with, and he's not capable. I mean, this is not, that some of this stuff is really complicated. The Department of Energy's secretary, Ernie Moniz, was at the table negotiating the Iran nuclear deal because you needed someone who knew what was required to build a nuclear bomb to determine whether the Iranians now wouldn't be able to. But it isn't Rick Perry. You look around the government and the level of incuriosity about the thing they're managing is breathtaking. You also mentioned in some cases people that knew people coming in that the staffers feared would simply just raid the larder. Well, there are two things going on that are response to this absence of a sense of mission. Like, who does show up to work in that enterprise? Broadly speaking, it's people with some very narrow interest, something they want to they want to get for themselves out of it. You find, for example, fossil fuel sector lobbyists, oil company lobbyists going into the Department of Energy and, and basically hostile to any kind of research and development into solar or wind or anything that might be competitive with fossil fuels. You go into the Department of Commerce, and one of the big parts of it is the Weather Service. And that, that enterprise has been critical 
in our ability to improve weather prediction. The approach until now has been share this data with the private sector. It's the people's data. Let's all work on this together to see if we can get better at weather prediction. And we've gotten better at weather prediction. We got better at storm warnings. Lives have been saved because of this. There was one character in the private sector, the CEO of AccuWeather named Barry Myers, who has lobbied for decades to shut down public access to the weather data because the harder it is for the National Weather Service to give you a weather forecast, the more you need AccuWeather to give you your weather forecast. And that's the guy who wants the job. You see that throughout the Trump administration. The people who want the jobs have some narrow personal interest in the jobs, not some sense of public mission. There was some point where lists were gathered or people tried to gather lists trying to find out who had supported climate change, who are all the employees, who are all the scientists who've supported climate change in any way, give us their names. Yeah, so both in the Department of Agriculture and in the Department of Energy, they're intensely interested in climate change, and a lot of scientific work is being done. But the first Trump people who finally came in to those departments demanded a list of all the scientists who had attended climate change-related meetings. You also write they demanded the names and salaries of the highest-paid science labs and deleted contacts for all the scientists there so there wouldn't be communication with them. Yes, and remove lots of data from websites and that kind of thing. And, and every time you found one of these attempts to either limit communication or limit public information, you could trace it back to some interest. So, for example... Right after the Trump administration took over, the Department of Agriculture removed data from its website, and it was a list of all the animal abuse cases that had been brought. And what's behind that? What's behind that is uh, a rancher's association. It's essentially hostile to animal rights. It was a guy, that's who was there doing it. My guest is Michael Lewis, author of The Fifth Risk. His other works are Moneyball, The Big Short, The Blind Side, Liar's Poker, among many others. Did we lose as a nation any more people from the federal agencies when this administration came in than we have at past transitions from one party to the next? Oh, my God, yes. I mean, there, there's a, a top layer to the permanent civil service. They call it the senior civil service. A fifth of those people left in the first year. They're, they're just good people just trying to do their job. And I've, I found over and over and again it was breathtaking, the commitment to the country and the mission that these people had. They aren't by nature complainers, and by nature they are not partisan. So the last thing they want to be seen doing is complaining about the new president or the new administration. What they do is they, they speak with their feet. They walk. And so there has been relatively little carping in the press, but lots of movement inside the ranks of the civil service. There was even one agency that was looking forward to the new Trump people and had set out snacks that they thought these particular people that they thought were coming in would enjoy. They'd gone out of their way to be gracious hosts and were looking forward to the arrival. So this is the Department of Agriculture, which kind of tilts. It's very rural. I mean, most of what it's doing is in rural America. Most rural America went very heavily for Trump. It has a kind of Republican tilt to it already. The first person that Trump sent in was actually the lobbyist for Pepsi. And so they stocked the fridge with Pepsi. 
I mean, it's appalling to think that they're sending a lobbyist for Pepsi first in the Department of Agriculture, because among other things, the Department of Agriculture manages the school lunch programs and all that. But nevertheless, they try to be friendly. It's kind of like the friendly place. And nobody shows. And then when they do show, they're showing a spirit of hostility. Why hostile? What do you mean by hostility? Well, they, they asked for the names of anybody who'd been involved in climate change research. They removed data from the Department of Agriculture websites. They made a mockery of what the department did by the people they eventually appointed. So, for example, this multi-billion dollar uh, science program that's in the middle of the Department of Agriculture. Three billion dollars a year of grants that are made to, you know, largely to ag colleges to do research about, you know, how are you going to graze sheep when it's 10 degrees warmer in, you know, Montana? Uh, how are you going to grow corn and wheat when it's 10 degrees warmer in Kansas? Research that actually will pay off 20 or 30 years down the road when we can actually grow crops in this different climate. And the person who typically administers that is an agricultural scientist, usually who has a lot of respect in the field and knows the field and, you know, has some ability to evaluate the proposals coming into the, into the Department of Agriculture. Trump appointed to run that program a right-wing talk show radio host from Iowa who happened to have supported him, who had absolutely no science background at all. That sends a signal to the people who were there that these people don't respect what we do. Title of this book is The Fifth Risk, and it comes from your interview with a man who was the <clears throat> chief risk officer for the Department of Energy. You asked him to identify the top five things that kept him awake at night that he was most worried about. Yeah, he, he had a, assembled a list of 138 risks, and I said, I only want the top five. And he says, uh, a loose nuke, a nuke getting away, a nuclear accident. It's North Korea being able to deliver a missile to our shores. He was afraid that the incoming president would not understand the value of the Iranian nuclear deal, just how sure we were that the Iranians couldn't develop a nuclear weapon and would ditch it and create real nuclear risk in the Middle East. Four was the electric grid, which the Department of Energy sort of is the closest thing to a, a go-to place to make sure that it's not too vulnerable. And they routinely bring in the executives of your local utilities and show them essentially ter acts of terrorism aimed at the electric grid and what they can do and, and cyber terrorism that is getting, becoming more and more of a threat. And if you, if you take away power from, I don't know, the, the New York City for a month, it's a catastrophe. Speaking of which, you had mentioned one particular incident where a sniper... Yeah, so, so this was in Silicon Valley, an attack on a power station. It sounded almost like a drive-by shooting. Someone fired some bullets into the transformers. But not only did they do that, they went into manholes on either side and, and cut cables. Where they shot into the transformers was exactly where it was supposed to shoot. It was a very professional operation. It knocked out that power station that serves Google, for example. It happens to be there was a backup station. So people didn't really notice it, but from the Department of Energy's point of view, it looked like practice. It looked like they were trying to establish how you how you take out one of these things. And both the Chinese and the Russians are routinely attacking our electric grid, cyber attacks. So that was his fourth risk. And then he sat there after he listed four and he said, program management, which sounds so dull, but it ended up being a catch-all for a kind of risk. And it's this kind of risk. It's the thing you're not thinking about because it's not vivid it's a, and it's a slow-moving kind of long-term risk that's being managed by the government, of which there are many, but in fact has catastrophic potential. 
And the specific example he gave was the Hanford nuclear cleanup in western Washington. It's 600 square miles where in the 1940s we produced the plutonium for the bombs that we dropped on Japan. But it was done so hastily that we poured hundreds of millions of gallons of toxic byproduct, waste product, into the soil there. And there is essentially a plume of poisonous stuff moving very slowly towards the Columbia River. And if it gets into the river, it's a catastrophe for the Pacific Northwest. And we government's been managing this since then. The scope of the thing is breathtaking. If you ask the people in the Department of Energy, what's this going to cost and how long it's going to take? They say $100 billion in 100 years. But the Trump administration's approach is like, let's like slash the budget for this. What is this? And you can get away with that if you don't care about what happens in 30 years, when because of what you did, the plume ends up in the Columbia River, or because of what you did, there's some pandemic 30 years down the road, or because of what you did, some nuclear weapon goes off, or, or some terrorist gets his hands on nuclear materials. And it's that kind of thing this guy was worried about, that the government is constantly managing risks that, yeah, if we screw it up, we may not see the, the catastrophe right away. It may be decades, but you've got to focus like a laser on those, on those problems. Y- you, don't, you don't have the United States of America without a federal government. There are a lot of immigrants who, who are attracted to government work because they've come from places where they see what happens when you don't have a functioning government, how catastrophic it is, the price you pay. They see the importance of the work. I, don't, I think a lot of the rest of us have gotten complacent about that. And we've forgotten how important it is. We honor the military. We forget that all these people who are not in the military are also patriots, and without them, we're lost. You also said there's so much money flowing from the federal government to desperately poor rural communities, and they're conflicted about it. They need this money to not be on a par with villages in sub-Saharan Africa. That's right. You know, it, it is amazing how heavily subsidized rural America is. If you drive around this country, you drive through small towns in, in the south, you'll see a fire station, you'll see an, a, a nice schoolhouse, you'll see power, you'll see internet access. Virtually all of that is subsidized heavily by the federal government through the Department of Agriculture. I mean, to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. But if you talk to the people at the Department of Agriculture, they'll say, we'll show up at this ribbing-cutting ceremony of the new firehouse. And the mayor will say, please don't let anybody know you're here. It, it just irritates people to know the government's involved in any way. So the government has a marketing problem. It's not really allowed to sell itself. A, a lot of what it does is just like hidden from the people who are benefiting from what it does. Michael Lewis, thank you for sharing your insights with me and with good reason. Thank you, Sarah. Michael Lewis is the author of The Fifth Risk. His other works include Moneyball, The Big Short, The Blind Side, and Liar's Poker, among many others. Come to the 25th anniversary of the Virginia Festival of the Book, March 20th through 24th in Charlottesville featuring hundreds of authors in programs for all ages and reading interests, vabook.org. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzyk, Kelly Libby, 
Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. We had help from Sandy Hausman of Radio IQ and Steve Clark at WCVE. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.